The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not really. It's the various factions under him and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India and there's certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Verdon. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, on today's programme, we're going to be talking a lot about COP28. It kicks off in Dubai, gathering world leaders from around the globe and also some people who'd like to be leaders. Labour's Keir Starmer is among the delegates attending. Don't forget, earlier this week, he had a meeting with the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, and Rishi Sunak cancelled his. It rather reminds me, Caroline, of Davos, when Sir Keir was schmoozing the global elite (laughs) and Rishi Sunak stayed at home, seemingly nervous to be branded one of them. Do you reckon this could be part of Starmer's plan to look like a Prime Minister in waiting? Yes, absolutely. I think it's part of his plan. It does raise that interesting debate that we had also with the Greek PM about, you know, what is the role of the opposition leader when it comes to kind of foreign affairs, diplomatic relations. But look, when it comes to COP28, of course, King Charles is also in Dubai for a couple of days with meetings there. Obviously, someone who's been deeply involved in COP for a lot of years. Should he be now he's the monarch? Yes, again, sort of similar questions. But then there's also the big question mark around the COP28 president, Sultan Al-Jaber, who's the CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil, which is, you know, the world's 12th largest oil company. I mean, I, I think there's a real debate about that and who sort of leads when it comes to global climate change. We have not done particularly well since the last COP a year ago. Yeah, who remembers or who's seen what came out of Glasgow? Or Paris. Yeah, I think that's true. But on the other hand, even you know people who are very sceptical about an oil executive leading COP28, I would just say one thing, you know, from the industry perspective, there is a kind of real politique. And, and I use that word, you know, thinking about, of course, Henry Kissinger, who died yesterday. This idea that you have to confront the world as it is and not as you would wish it to be. And I think the industry would say these big global organizations, corporations, oil majors indeed, also need to be at the heart of how we change kind of green policy. I know that the environmentalists will poo-poo that, but I, I, I do understand why there is also pushback that who is going to deliver the green change that we desperately need might not be happening quickly enough, but actually if you don't involve the corporations, how does it get done? Well, I also have to ask myself whether having 70,000 people descend on Dubai via plane, presumably, is surely the best way to fix the planet. But on the point of Keir Starmer, it does seem like it would be a bit irresponsible if he didn't forge these relations with international leaders now, given the situation in the polls. Mm. And I was speaking to a senior Treasury civil servant yesterday who served New Labour, Mm. so no longer works in the Treasury. But they were saying that Blair and Brown 
down were far more prepared for government back in 1997. They had the plans ready baked to go and what's the phrase oven ready ready to go and actually that's just not the situation now with Labour. Well do you think so? I think that's interesting that you raise that that conversation. Six months ago I would have agreed with you. Now are we certain of that and in six months time will we be? I'm sure that Labour must be preparing for that. That's what he said but Mm. the Chancellor of course is desperate to see Labour's economic plans. He was in the Times yesterday baiting Labour saying there's fundamental dishonesty honesty and Labour's plan. They can't support Tory tax cuts, borrow an extra £20 billion a year and get debt falling. So are they going to cancel something or raise taxes? That's his question. I reckon, therefore, Keir Starmer is going to enjoy the more international focus in Dubai. Yeah, maybe. Although, will he be in favour of, you know, the Climate Mitigation Fund? That's the main talking point in COP28 about giving money to, you know, perhaps from industrialised countries to developing countries, you know, to try to mitigate mitigate you know the climate issue there's no size and scope who's going to pay etc what would Labour's position on that be now Nottingham City is the latest UK council to go bankrupt the region declared a section 114 notice yesterday evening citing increased demand for children's and adult social care rising homelessness and the impact of inflation as having put extra pressure on its finances it's the latest local authority to run out of money after bankruptcies in Birmingham this year which meant that six uh, plus six other councils which have gone bust since 2018. Now, Councillor Stephen Houghton is the chair of the Special Interest Group of Municipal Authorities. Its recent survey found that 30% of members risked issuing a Section 114 notice in the next two years. Welcome to the programme. Do you think this is random? Is this systematic underfunding? Is this mismanagement by the council in Nottingham City? Obviously, I'm not in a position to look at the day-to-day accounts of Nottingham City, but what I can say is Nottingham, like every other council, is under severe financial pressure. One, because of the things you've already highlighted around children's and adult social care, but secondly, because the, the system for funding local authorities is now generally accepted to be broken and we need a new way of funding our local services. So does that mean that local authorities can't be trusted to look after their own money? No, what it means is local authorities have got massive demand pressures, particularly around children and adults, but also elsewhere, whether it's homelessness, need to keep fixing the roads, need to keep making communities safe. These pressures go on year on year, and we can't meet those responsibilities with the level of grant funding that the government gives us. Does it go back to austerity? It goes back to austerity originally. If we go back 10 years, you remember local authorities had to go through a series of financial savings exercises or cuts, as most people call it, in order to balance the books at that time. We thought we'd got through that, but now it's back again. And of course, authorities now have no longer have any low hanging fruit. There are not easy changes to make. They've been lean and mean for the last five to 10 years. We then get the latest picture where massive demand is outstripping the resources available and it's inevitable we will see more 114 notices issued uh, in the months and years ahead as we've seen from the survey of our members. 
But let's talk about the investment decisions of local councils. How much do their choices on where to put the money actually have a bearing on future bankruptcy filings? Well, it it depends what you mean by investment. Um, There are two sides to local authority budgets. One is a capital investment side, which we all do. Uh, We borrow money to fix the roads. We borrow money to build new houses. Uh, We borrow money for new plant and equipment to keep services going. Um, And then there's obviously the revenue investment into services themselves. We've seen some local authorities, but they are very few, uh, who've got into investment difficulties trying to find ways and means of avoiding some of these substantial savings that we have to make. And clearly, they have to take some responsibility for that. But when we look at places like Birmingham or Nottingham and indeed Kirklees and others, these are being caused by that substantial pressure on those revenue budgets from service demand, but also by a grant system that's not working. First of all, the grant that's coming through isn't enough uh, to meet that demand. But secondly, the distribution of that grant by government has also changed dramatically in the last 10 years. We used to have a system that public services received grant on the basis of the needs of the area. What the government's done in the last 10 years is start to move away from a needs-based approach to one of economic uh, growth and prosperity. So inevitably what's been happening is poorer areas that don't have the growth have seen their money taken away and given to more prosperous areas that do have the economic growth. You remember Rishi Sunak, when he mm. was standing for election as, as party leader, said, I've changed the formulas to move the money into your areas. Well, what that's done, basically, is move money from the north and the Midlands um, into, into the south of England. So mm. we've got, one, not enough money, but two, distribution, which simply isn't fair. Yeah, and I, I suspect the government would push back on that and say, look, that they're, you know, levelling up agenda, although they don't use that terminology quite so much anymore, that they would say that they are trying to, um, you know, bring areas up across the country and that they're not focused on, on doing that, that it isn't sort of party political. That would, I suspect, be their defence. But look, um, your organisation, you're meant to be a collective voice. You're a campaigning organisation and you talk about wanting to secure sufficient, sustainable and fair funding. So this must surely, in your mind, go back to government, you know, how, why is government not listening in terms of the funding needs from councils? And does it also simply mean that the council tax is going to have to be, continue to be raised significantly across the country? Um, I think we will see council tax rising significantly. Now it's capped, so uh, the levels we can go to again determined by the government but uh, most local authorities have a bit more flexibility on council tax to try and deal with adult social care. The problem with council tax is we all have very different council tax bases and so the ability to raise money through council tax varies wildly across the country and it's it's no long-term solution. Um, This does go back to government and enough money in the system. We've just got to be honest about that and say, government can't say Mm. to us, keep children safe, fund all those adult needs, but by the way, uh, there's no more money to do it. No, there's got to be a recognition of the scale of this. And this is cross-party. This isn't just Labour or Conservative or whatever. Everyone is saying the same thing. 
But councils must also take responsibility for the failed types of investments that they've gone to in that sort of desperate move to try to make, you know, the pounds go further. There have been some disastrous issues with councils putting in money into complex investment uh, structures to try to make the money go further. I mean, that that's surely a failure of, of devolution, of giving councils too much um, power in some ways to make very, very difficult uh, financial decisions about budgets. There are a handful of councils who've done that, and you're quite right. They need to take responsibility for what they've done. But what we're seeing now is way beyond that. We're looking at local authorities who have proud and strong records of good financial management across the country saying to us, we can't go on like this. Um, And if the settlement next year doesn't improve... What you will see this time next year, October, November next year, is a lot more councils, places that have had the highest respect, not just in their local communities, but across the country, that will be looking at the kind of things we are seeing today. So what we mustn't do is tarnish the whole sector uh, by the, the poor management of one or two. We've got to look at this in the round. And in the round, the sector is as one, both politically, geographically, Everyone is saying the same thing. Can they all be wrong? But as people are seeing more of these bankruptcies, do you worry about the future of devolution? Of course. Um, In the end, our first responsibility is to provide good local services. Um, And if we can't manage to do that, then devolution doing other things, as exciting as and interesting as that might be, pales into insignificance. Our job, first and foremost protect children, look after older people, make sure we can do those basic services that people want in their communities. That's the platform for devolution. So there's got to be enough money in the system to allow us to do that before we start saying, well, we'll do all these other great things, which no doubt we would like to do, uh, but that, Mm. that foundation has got to be in the right place. Councillor Stephen Houghton, thank you so much for being with us. Hope you'll come back onto Bloomberg Radio. Talk to us about what happens next in Nottingham City after that Section 114 notice. Uh, Stephen Houghton, Chair of the Special Interest Group of Municipal Authorities. Now, just in April this year, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, announced three brand new members of the Economic Advisory Council. The group was set up to provide independent, expert advice on economic policy to grow the economy. But this month, it was disbanded, just over a year after it was first established. Well, we spoke to one of those three new members, Dr Anna Valero, on Bloomberg Radio, and we asked her why the council is no more. Here's her answer. The fact is that... Economists and experts are constantly providing their analysis and advice to government, to civil servants, um, and I hope that I can continue doing the same based on the academic research that we conduct. So that was Dr Anna Valero, which begs the question, what happened to the Chancellor's trusted advisers? Bloomberg's Philip Aldrich learned earlier this year that the majority of them were worried the Bank of England was going too far raising rates. Did that have something to do with their axing? Phil joins us now on the line. Phil, had the best minds in markets become a liability? I don't think so. They they certainly hadn't hadn't become a, a liability. And yeah, the position they took earlier in the year in terms of this uh, advice they were giving the chancellor that you know, rate rises had gone far enough turned out to have been 
the right advice and you know obviously now the bank has um has paused the rate hikes the the general conversation internationally is is widely that you know we've hit the top of table mountain and we're going to come down the other side at some point but not for a while so i i don't i don't think they've they've been a liability i think the 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 chancellor basically i mean the the way the treasury thinks about it is that these um these great economic minds were brought in after the sort of trust debacle to stabilize the market crisis that um that came out of the mini budget back in september november uh, september 2022 um and you know they believe that effectively that sort of stabilization mm. has worked you've seen you know you're not you're not seeing a particular um uh sort of wedge between our our sort of government borrowing costs and, and other other european countries borrowing costs so okay. i mean there's there's not been this there's that that sort of stabilization has 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 happened so they they can argue that the the, the job has been done yeah um yes okay so that the, these advisors have helped um and that they're moving forwards i love this sort of story phil i gotta say it because we so often talk about the announcements of government and the and the new initiatives and we hardly ever you know seem in the main go back over what they've actually done and when it gets disbanded um I mean, surely this, though, one could argue, is a moment that the Chancellor still does desperately need advisors. I mean, it's only been, you know, as you say, a year. Valero's specialism is in economic growth. And that's what everyone is talking about the UK needing. Yeah, so they absolutely do need to be taking advice. And the Treasury, uh, the Chancellor is still taking advice. It's not as clear who he's taking the advice from now. I mean, he's definitely having these regular meetings with Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England. He's got, you know, Sam Beckett, who used to be, you know, senior statistician in the UK, and now she's the uh, chief economist at the Treasury. Um, you know, he's got his internal advisor, Adam Menon, but he's uh, he's also... Um, uh, uh, he's, I mean, they're, they're making sure that he is speaking to, you know, business um, and uh, and other economic uh, economic experts on a mm. sort of regular basis. That's 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 how I understand it. Um, so so I mean, you, you remember, obviously, Hunt does need to take advice. He's not a trained economist. He's he's uh, you know he's relatively new to the job and thrust into the just thrust into a crisis. So I mean, I'm sure he, he he's he's definitely using. Uh, what expertise he can find. I mean, a few members of the council were ex-Bank of England, Sushil Wadwani, Gerton Vlieger. Do you think that not having them made a difference to the autumn statement? Of course, the focus was cutting taxes. Do you think that those members would have condoned that when you've still got inflation twice above twice the Bank of England's target? Um, the... So the, the 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 fiscal position is a little bit more complicated because obviously the the, chan- the chancellor did announce a massive tax cut for you know national insurance which comes in in about six weeks time, but uh, that uh, is more than offset by the by the the, um, uh, the threshold freezes. So actually they're taking more tax. So the OECD did say this week uh, that actually the fiscal position that the UK is taking is tightening and it does work. It is still working with the Bank of England to. Uh, to bear down on inflation. So despite that tax cut, um, you know, the, the, 
the, the, there is fiscal consolidation happening. So that is taking money out of the economy, you know, fixing the public finances and reducing borrowing. So there's there's there isn't a stimulus. So it's not like you know um, that that disastrous mini budget. It's it, it, the, the policy objectives are are still aligned to get inflation down. So that is the OECD's judgment. Uh, so it, I, I, that I would I wouldn't say that these guys would. I don't think they would be saying that, that that there's been some catastrophic error. I mean, remember the the way that this this worked was it was very much a one way conversation. So the experts would come into the room, they would tell the chancellor all the things which you know are difficult, need to be dealt with, what business wants, what markets need, etc. And they didn't get much back because obviously the chancellor was very conscious that these people could actually then talk about what the what the government's policies would be so it was so they didn't want like leaks coming out of this of this council so so the this was you know this was this was a sort of we're in listening mode within the treasury and and i and i guess what they're doing is that they're still in listening mode but just with a less official bunch of people because they don't feel like they need to have this sort of overarching economic committee now that markets have effectively stabilized and let's hope that they stay that way yeah that's what i heard phil as well whenever i was trying to wheedle out of them what the chancellor was really thinking they said it was a one-way conversation but look the reason that we had dr valero on the radio was primarily to talk about this productivity report that economists and academics like Diane Coyle at University of Cambridge, trade union members as well, policymakers, have called for this statutory body to oversee productivity growth. You've had the Economic Council that we were just talking about abandoned. I'm constantly hearing that the Office for Budget Responsibility and the Office for National Statistics are understaffed. So is there really an appetite? Are there really the resources to create a whole new statutory body on productivity? Well, you know, they they find the resources if they want to do it, um, if, if they want to do it enough. Um, I don't get the impression that there there is any desire to to set up to set up a separate statutory body. There was the Office for Tax Simplification, which they which they've taken. Well, Quasi Quateng, obviously, in his brief uh, stint as Chancellor, decided to disband and and Hunt and uh, and Sunak continued with that, and they brought that in house. I guess they feel that the Treasury. Um, and there are there's 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 sort of independent um, groups like Anna Valeros and Bart Van Arks, um, another economist who's very focused on productivity. They're, they're doing a lot of work on 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 this. So I I I, I don't know whether a, you know it's, it's necessary to have a productivity institute, but you know, you know there used to be an industrial strategy council. Um, it. it and that was disbanded as well. That was Andy Haldane. Of course, he then rejoined as one of the economic advisors. And just on on the economic advisors, one one small complication was Rupert Harrison was on on that economic advisory committee. Mm. He's now standing to be a Tory MP. So you know there it does it. There were ways in which it looked um, as though you know, there were sort of potential biases on that committee. But but the. Yeah. Um, there are the industrial strategy council. There are reasons to have these productivity groups, these industrial strategy councils. But the you can see clearly that this government doesn't really want these to be interfering. They're they're, they're more free marketeers than than Labour on that front. Whereas mm. Labour would have some kind of industrial strategy council or some productivity group. This this government wants to sort of let the market sorted out as they you know as the chancellor said in his speech he's with them they don't want to be a big big government they want to step back and let the private sector deal with these things as they would 
Okay, Phil, thank you so much. The inner workings then of government, how they think about economics, who advises them, it begs Phil Aldrich. Well, back to Dubai now for COP28. It's set to be the biggest discussion yet of how to prevent an environmental catastrophe in the hottest year on record. We're joined now by Bloomberg's political correspondent, Ellen Milligan. Ellen, what's the UK government putting on the table in Dubai? Well, Sunak is flying there to be there for about 12 hours tomorrow in Dubai. I'm one of the press pack going with him. Um, He's yet to make announcements, but we did reveal in our own reporting um, that the UK is expected to pledge money for this loss and damage fund. What's that? um, It's it's money that um, more developed nations, more uh, rich nations put for islands, for smaller developing nations who um, have really suffered damage uh, because of rising temperatures, uh, because of disruptive weather due to the climate. Um, So it helps mitigate those and repair some of that damage done. It's Mm. kind of of like a compensation um, for, for the loss that they've suffered. Um, we're also expecting just under £500 million uh, pounds pledged by the UK to go towards um, rainforests and forestry. Um, and there will also be some announcements on climate finance, um, potentially a UK-Canada summit next year on phasing away from coal, um, and also um, a pledge between uh, the US, Canada, Japan, France and the UK on nuclear fuel. So lots of tidbits here and there. Um, mm. But definitely the, the the kind of big headlines will be about loss and damage and climate finance and the focus on the UK going big on being the hotspot for carbon markets. Although, of course, there's still a debate around loss and damage, whether it's voluntary contributions or whether those voluntary contributions get turned into uh, something um, something more compulsory. Ellen, what about Labour's offer? We were just talking about Keir Starmer being in Dubai. Yeah, there's this odd tussle that's been happening really for about a year between Sunak and Starmer on, on who attracts most interest from business leaders, lobbyists, I guess, green groups, um, green firms as well. And you've really seen that kind of become much more visible uh, this past week. The Global Investment Summit, the breakfast that Starmer and uh, Reeves held with big banks like JP Morgan at Sunak's own investment summit, the debacle over the Elgin Marbles and actually Starmer being the one to have the bilat with the Greek Prime Minister to talk about UK-Greek cooperation. And I think you're going to see that again at COP you'll see these counter announcements from the government and from Labour about potentially like climate finance, loss and damage, um, Mm. renewables. Uh, Labour will go big on their green energy plan. Um, And there will also probably be talking a lot about Labour being able to attract new investment into the renewable sector. Um, Mm -hmm. And also Starmer's going for quite a bit longer than Sunak is. so, So there's that as well. All right, Ellen Milligan, have a safe flight to Dubai. Good luck. Thanks for bringing us the latest. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.